This is Channel 253. Move to Tacoma. On this episode of Move to Tacoma. We are like letting our hair down, relaxing, listening to some good music, joking, having a good time. I know everybody likes to think that black people are just like so angry all the time. And it's like a freaking celebration when we can just chill. Channel 253 is a member-supported podcast network. I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I'm asking you to become a member and show your support. Go to channel253.com slash membership to join. Thank you. Practicing physical distance, not social. I'm Marguerite, and I want you to move to Tacoma. Move to Tacoma. Move to Tacoma. Move to Tacoma. You'll like it. Move to Tacoma. Move to Tacoma. Move to Tacoma. Hi, I'm Marguerite. This is Move to Tacoma, and I am here today with my friend, my manager, and my business lady colleague, Jasmine Jefferson. Welcome, Jasmine. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm surprised you invited me back after the first one, but I'm happy to be here. Well, you guest hosted the podcast, and you did an amazing job, so why wouldn't you you come back? I'm, I'm, I'm so happy whenever you come on the podcast, Jasmine. I'm excited. Okay, so this topic was your suggestion. Mm-hmm. Um, we had the chance to actually test drive this topic a little bit on the uh, burgeoning uh, iPhone-only app Clubhouse. Yes. So we had a chance to kind of kick the tires on this conversation a little bit, and it's it's an uncomfortable conversation. Um, we're going to talk about our friendship mm-hmm. and um, race and sort of... All the, all the ways I have um, been learning in friendship with you and different things that have come up. And hopefully um, this will give other people the opportunity to learn something about, what did you call it, Jasmine? Stumblings? Yes, stumblings. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> We're going to talk about race and friendship. <laughs> and like all the things that come up. And like, yeah, so that more people, maybe hopefully people who are not having those uncomfortable conversations within their friendships can maybe get the courage uh, to, to do so. And yes. I feel I feel very vulnerable right now, Jasmine. I don't I, know how I you do feel. too, honestly. So <laughs> I didn't bring tissue. Is there tissue around here? Oh, we got I'll paper just towels. Use my 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 COVID mask to dab oh, yeah. my tears. <laughs> there we go. We'll just wipe up. Wipe away the tears. But I think that um what I really want people to think about when they listen to us have this conversation and know is that it's because of these conversations that our friendship strengthened. Yeah. And if there's people who are curious and, you know, I don't know what made you comfortable to ask me the question. So I'd love to learn about that today when we're talking, Mm. because at some point you identified that it was okay to talk about the stuff. Mm -hmm. So, well, normally when we do move to Tacoma, I ask when people move to Tacoma and mm, why, okay. and what neighborhood you live in and why, as a way for folks to get to know the guests. Awesome. So um, maybe we could start with that, and then maybe also contrast kind of our different experiences of growing up in Pierce County. Okay. Um, I should probably say, if, if it's probably not obvious, like... Jasmine is a black woman, and I am a white woman, and we're more or less the same age. I'm 41. How old are you right now, Jasmine? 44. Oh, you're older than me. I always forget. Yes. So, yes. So, we both grew up in Pierce County, but we obviously had very different experiences. So, mm-hmm. when did you move to Tacoma, Jasmine, and why? I'm pretty sure it started at conception. <laughs> uh, my dad met my mom at a Piggly Wiggly. I heard she rolled in in, like, a gold bikini. She was looking for something. My dad worked there, and bam. Bam. Next thing you know, 
Jasmine's here. Piggly Wiggly. That's yes. a blast from the past. Right? So, yeah, my mom had moved here from Oregon. She was staying with some family. Hadn't been here very long. My dad moved here from a military family. Moved here in the late 50s, early 60s. And um, so that's how my, my parents got here. So I was born at Tacoma General in 76. And um, been here all my life. My dad owned a home on the perimeter of Hilltop. So we considered it Hilltop. And um, I went to Franklin, Jason Lee, Foss. And then, um, you know, as a young adult, I moved to different neighborhoods. So I've lived on the east side. I've lived on the north end. And eventually I bought my grandparents' home a year and a half ago. And so I'm back on the east side where it all started. That's awesome. Well, what do you love about your neighborhood, Jasmine? I love that people from the old neighborhood are still there. And, you know, when I first bought the house, I was out cutting the grass and somebody drove by and they were like, Ethel, is that you, Ethel? And I was like, <laughs> no, it's her niece. Oh, okay. And, then, you know, somebody else came by and was like, welcome to the hood. Hope you know you bought the house with the best cherry trees on the east side. And I was like, oh. I know. I'm the granddaughter. So um, it, it's been nice doing that. The neighborhood looks different. There's different people living in the neighborhood. A lot more uh, white people than before. And um, so the feeling's a little different. You know, before you'd ride your bike down the street. Oh, hey, Mr. Henry. Or, you know, you would. now I don't know anybody. So that's a little weird. But. My aunt, uncle, and grandma do live across the street, okay. so I still have a neighbor that I can wave to and say, hey, perfect neighbor. That must be a trip moving into your grandma's house. Like, I imagine this is a place you spent a lot of time as a kid. I spent a lot of time as a kid there. My, um, I have a picture of me, my dad, and my grandpa, and my grandpa and my dad are pouring the concrete for the posts to support the, the back patio cover. Oh, wow. And my footprint from that day is in the the concrete still. So lots of memories, places where my grandpa randomly carved Jefferson. Um, he, You know how in real estate, the coveted concrete flower garden borders? Yeah. So I have those all over the place and I found, and I've never seen this in my entire life, where he had put Jefferson in the concrete that he had poured. So lots of memories in that mm. house for sure. There's a story that his thumb might be under the cherry tree, so that might maybe that's why it's so good. I don't know. Well, I also grew up in Pierce County. I was born at Good Sam, and uh, my parents took me home to Ording. We lived in Lewis County for a while, but I started school on South Hill in Puyallup. We moved to Spanaway, and I know from talking to you that the way I grew up was really different than the way you grew up, in spite of the fact we grew up maybe 25 minutes from each other. I, I'll, we could just contrast our elementary school experiences. Like there was one black kid in our school at Pope Elementary in Puyallup in the late 80s. And Nate, our, friend, our mutual friend, Nate Bowling, like he has said like, oh, that was the, the peak of integration in the United States actually happened while you and I were in school. I did not have that experience. And then I moved to Spanaway and there was a lot more diversity because it was closer to the base. Um, and that was, that was a big shift, but like, I, I would say like, I probably started my life in the widest part of the county and I'm, you know, I, I don't have a relationship with my family anymore, but I can't imagine that that wasn't by design. 
Yeah, that's tough. We've talked about that too. Mm-hmm. A lot. And I think that was part of, you know, the, the post-1968 white flight. And we have to be, I'm, try, I'm, I'm suddenly realizing, like, how careful do we have to be as real estate agents where we're not supposed to talk about white neighborhoods and, you know, the... But that, that's a reality of the time. So you, you just said 1968 white flight. The neighborhood that my grandparents bought their home was built for off, black officers returning from World War II. Right. And so it was designed to be a black, black neighborhood people were steered to that neighborhood specifically so you know this is a product of those laws that were yeah. in place or practices yes. they may not have been in writing so they bought that house in 1964 you're talking about 1968 so we have this parallel universe mm -hmm. that we're living in and very different experiences yeah and i do want to clarify so Clubhouse, we mentioned, is totally giving me this mind screw. And this is totally off topic. We can talk about this later. But I am being more intentional about acknowledging that I'm biracial. Yeah. And not taking up space in, in different places where other voices can be heard. And my perception and life experience is that of a biracial woman. Mm -hmm. Although I do identify with, and I was raised by the black side of my family, mm. I think it's important to acknowledge that. So I grew up, my, my parents are both white. Uh, all sets of grandparents are white, various different European uh, ex you know, experiences, but like my family is white, white. Mm -hmm. And your mother was white and your father is black. Is that right? Yes. And you grew up with your father and your father's family. Correct. On Hilltop. Well, grandparents on the east side, dad could afford a home on Hilltop. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's how we did that. So we first met um, when I got involved with the local real estate association. You were already super involved <laughs> with the association, and you have remained involved to a degree that I I've, did take a break. I have not been as talented as you at, at working within the system. So I just want to, I mean, you don't need any props from me on that, but like you've always been a leader in the community and a leader within the real estate community, and that's how I got to know you. Mm -hmm. And I think our initial friendship was very like, Business lady friends, I don't think we ever discussed race. Actually, I Maybe. think what piqued my interest to what you were talking about and why you were a leader is you were pointing out to the board that the disparities in uh, income uh, and yeah. that we shouldn't be looking at all real estate professionals as ballers. Those weren't your words. <laughs> but you, said, you were pointing out some averages that a lot of our members qualified for low income or, you know, we know some of our military families qualify for food stamps. So when you said that, I related to that because I was looking around the room and seeing, even though I'm adjacent to white being biracial, mm -hmm. I was the only person of color on the board. So I felt it was imperative that I participate and have a voice the same way you were talking about people who you know, didn't come from a dual income household or who didn't have uh, health insurance. We both had a similar passion mm -hmm. to be a voice for people who were not represented at that table. 
Well, and just for folks who don't have any familiarity with what we're talking about, you know, the Real Estate Association in Tacoma and in Washington State, like, um, they represent the needs and the interests of realtors, but the people, it's all volunteer. So the people who are involved with the association tend to be the people with the most money and time. And those, in my opinion, high volume listing agents, sellers agents, you know, owners of brokerages, managers of brokerages, and those people by and large make the most money. Like the, the saying is it's like 10 to 15% of the agents in our industry do 90% of the sales. Mm -hmm. And you and I were both single women. You had a daughter. I was on my own. And um, we were operating in the 09, 10 market, which mm -hmm. was decimated. It was so hard to make a living as a realtor. And a lot of the decision makers on the boards were people who were builders, were people who owned companies, and they were advocating. I, the thing I remember us talking about was like an increase in the B&O tax. Mm -hmm. And it was like, you know, I was doing like eight deals a year at the time. <laughs> and like the cost to me was like an additional, you know, couple $300 a year. And I was like, if this means we get health insurance right. or whatever, like it's worth it. Let's and, you do know, it. Yeah. And like, you know, the people that did a hundred deals a year were like, this is a crisis. They're taxing real estate. Right. And the, just the different, and I think anybody listening in any industry can probably recognize that there are people on a spectrum within the industries and yeah, that was definitely something. But that was also very self-interested, Jasmine. Like, I mean, I was that person I was advocating But that for. was a missing voice from the conversation, yeah. and that's what was necessary. So that's what, you know, not only that we were close in age, but that's what piqued my interest, mm -hmm. that you were somebody I wanted to have a conversation with. And then we had coffee in Parkland, and mm -hmm. I had tea. That's you right. that? yeah. And that I think that interaction was kind of the, the beginning of us deciding to spend time offline and away from, you know, in that situation, the boardroom, because mm -hmm. we are at two different companies also. So as time went on, we had different uh, interactions. Eventually, you came to work at the same company as me, mm -hmm. and now you run that company. <laughs> no, just, a, just one location. It's, I'm a branch manager. Uh, you're my manager. Yes. And so, like, over time, like, our friendship, I think, became, you know, we started engaging on topics that we never would have talked about right. before. And with that came, like, it wasn't like... And we started talking about difficult issues right. and became very close. And now we both understand race better. Like, it wasn't like that, Jess. <laughs> no, it actually wasn't. So eventually we'll get to the part where we didn't know if we were going to be friends. Or I didn't yeah. know if I was going to be friends with yeah. you. I don't know what you were thinking. But it was a four-month questionable time period where I was like, meh, I'm not sure about this. I don't yeah. know if this is a safe space anymore. Well, and I think this is something like for me as an outgoing person and an outspoken person whose mouth usually starts working before my brain has necessarily caught up. <laughs> sometimes that's a real strategic advantage. And I think in conversations around race, um, especially with someone who I hope it's OK to say this, like I consider you to be a very sensitive soul yes. and uh, a person who really deeply thinks about things before you speak. Yeah. Like the way you receive that kind of unfiltered anything like you, you feel it very deeply. And that's something that within our friendship, I've tried to become more conscious about, like just thinking about what I say before I say it to you, because when you're talking about race. Like, you really need to think about what you're saying. No, I, I actually, say, I need to think about what I'm saying. Your um, different type of filter has enabled us to have conversations that other people won't have with me. Yeah, but I also, so I also recognize that, that you sometimes have to... I, I do, know. definitely. Mm. I won't respond right away, like the four-month <laughs> sabbatical. 
But I think that we really, um, what was happening historically that really got us talking about it? Because it wasn't like I came to you and said, Mm -hmm. hey, tell me about your white perspective. It was something had happened, and I feel like you came to me somehow. Well, I know for, on my, the, the, the perception I have from my perspective is I had done the American Leadership Forum ah, cohort. Yes, so yes, yes. for the first time in my life, I was having sustained, deep, like accountable conversations. What year was that? That was 2015. Okay. 2014, 2015, or 20, 2015, 20, no, no, 2014, 2015. And no, no, 2015, 2016. That's right. It was before Trump was elected. So the year tr- before Trump. And um, the conversations that, that we were having in that group made me realize, like, oh, I have this friend who is, as you say, biracial, mm-hmm. and we never talk about race. And I'm sure at some point someone had said that thing that, that people say, like, you know, if your black friends don't talk to you about race, like, you're not <laughs> much of a friend. And that realization for me that we didn't have those kinds of discussions, like I wanted, I wanted to know you fully and I right. realized I didn't. Can I just clarify that? So if you're black friend or friends, hopefully people have more than one friend, but most of the time I think there's somebody on the perimeter and it is just a singular person. Um, it's quite possible that you've not been identified as a safe space, mm-hmm. as a person who will take care of and respect their feelings and who they are as a human. So you could be a good friend in other ways, but then there's the, the topic of protecting one's yeah. blackness or identity where we don't always get the opportunity to be 100% ourselves because you never know what the perception's going to be or how you're going to be mistreated. My head goes two places when you say that. The first is that, you know, the reason that a lot of white people do not have black friends or maybe only have a few black colleagues or whatever, like, we are segregated. Our city is segregated. Our county is segregated. We were segregated by design before 1968 and then functionally segregated by real estate agents, white people fleeing diverse communities. Like, it's not an accident that I grew up not being around very many people of color, right? Mm -hmm. Like this is the way that we have been setting things up. And to be intentional about, you know, diversifying your circle as a white person, like that makes a lot of sense. But I mean, I I think like I didn't grow up like intentionally doing this, but at the same time, like that's how I was socialized. So now it's, I I feel like, I just want to say that because I feel like people are like, well, I mean how am I supposed to get black friends? Like, I don't, there aren't even any black people where I live. Right. So that that was just kind of a a background thought. Oh, ALF. Yeah. All the things ALF makes you think about. (laughs) So um, I knew about ALF before you took ALF. I was surprised you took ALF because you were kind of adverse to being on the inside and you really enjoyed being an outside perspective. And Mm -hmm. I understood American Leadership Forum to be a very... You were going inside of something. Yeah, and I don't think I under... I did not know what it was when I joined. Mm-hmm. Like, from a... Pers- I thought it was the place you went when you were going to run for office mm-hmm. and you wanted to make friends with everybody first. Like, I thought that's what ALF was. And I was like, I'm not running for office, but I'm also, like, a part of the community and I'm right. a real estate agent and I want to know people. So this seems like... an Eric nominated me and, mm-hmm. you know. And I had a completely different understanding of it from mm-hmm. a 
perspective of a person of color, like this is a place where you go to network, make connections, mm -hmm. and potentially um, be able to maneuver forward in some capacity. I mean, the biggest concern I had about it was it seemed like a cult. Like, it's the mm. sort of thing in Tacoma that you don't know about unless you know somebody who's been through it. Right. And then it's all a little mysterious, like, how you become part of one of these cohorts of 23 people for a year. Right. Uh, it also seems like a lot of the people that are in top positions within the community have done this program. Like, for me, it was, yep. as you say, like, somebody who sort of delights in being an outsider. I was like, what is this cult is this? stuff? Yes. And, yeah, I mean, we could talk about ALF all day, and I'm definitely game to talk about that. But one thing that it, it did do, like, hugely, like, the, the, the incredible positive impact of it is it just really shifted the quality of my circle. Right. And not just from a standpoint of people with fancy jobs, although I do know people with fancy jobs where, you know, I we didn't really have before. That, right? <laughs> I didn't have, I didn't go to college, like, I don't have that kind of network. Mm -hmm. But it also introduced, like, people of color and black women in particular into my immediate circle where I just, I didn't, and, and, and older women too, and I just didn't have those folks in my circle before, and it changed, it changed a lot. I kind of, so I was watching you go through this, and it was almost like you got your wig blown back. Oh, yeah. And you had this, like, look on your face, like your eyeballs were just bigger all the time after that. Yeah. So, Yeah. I'm, I'm kind of glad we experienced it separately, even yeah. though ALF was kind of the thing that brought us together. Um, not brought us together, but kind of allowed those conversations to start. Because I don't know what your experience was, but you started to approach me on topics. Yeah. Or if we just casually started a topic, all of a sudden you were very opinionated on something where I don't <laughs> think before you had thought much about it. So that, I think, leads us to the gentrification conversation. Absolutely. As you were building Move to Tacoma. Did I say that right? Yeah. Move to Tacoma. Okay. So you were building Move to Tacoma. You had it going. You were at least doing blog posts. I don't, you know, remember all mm -hmm. chronologically. Podcast was up. A yeah, podcast was up. Absolutely. I think you had even started getting some pushback from the community. Absolutely. That, that you, were, you were starting to do that. So we were having lunch or tea or something we were at a, a establishment on the hilltop i don't recall where we were at and you let me know that somebody had bought browns which was a historically black establishment at least during my lifetime i knew about the cavaleros which is a black social club and i knew mm -hmm. about browns those were the two places that i knew to be black establishments. Right, and for me, this was just like kind of just general information. I didn't yep. know the people doing it. I was yes. like, oh yeah, this is just a thing happening. Yep. Like the way the realtors talk about what's being developed and what's going in. I, did, I had no idea what Browns was. Right. I'd never and, heard of it. And my suggestion was since you had a conversation with people who were around the discussion of what was going to happen to Browns, mm -hmm. my opinion was that those people should talk to the patrons of Browns and the people who had worked there for decades mm -hmm. and whose families generationally had visited and what this place meant to Tacoma and try to preserve part of it. And my biggest issue with gentrification is to wipe away the history right. of what was there before. Right. You know, as a realtor, we have these conflicting thoughts. Of course, we would like neighborhoods to be improved and we would like the homes to be safe and sound and people to um, love living in the area. So I would love to see things happen in the hilltop, but it was just like, don't erase us. Yeah. Don't, you know, 
we used to have so many things going on on the hilltop and at that time it was just the right chain of situations happening and your comments and oh yeah it was just yeah so well and from my perspective like i remember hearing you say that definitely not i mean now i listen to that and i'm like oh my god like <laughs> But I, the look on your face was just like, but what do you mean? What, like, well, why I would mean, we? Why do we need to do that? And what am I supposed to? I don't know these people. What am right, I supposed to do right. about it? Like, oh, this sounds so complicated. Yeah. And then you know, as and 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 I I know I didn't make much of an impression on you in that conversation. Well, that that's actually we had conversations before that, but I that was so just so you know that four month gap was yes. based off of this conversation because you you said, well, black people need to just buy this stuff so that, you know, I don't remember your exact words, right, so right. feel free to correct me, so that if you don't want white people buying up everything, then black people need to buy it. And I think my response was, well, that would be nice if there was access to money. Right, like, don't you think we've thought of that? Right. This, if <laughs> it was that simple, <laughs> we wouldn't be sitting here coming up with problems to save the hilltop by yeah, ourselves. I, I think, like, it's embarrassing to have my learning sort of, like, out in front of everyone to look at. But I think this is important because my initial impulses as I began to understand institutional racism, mm -hmm. I think, are really consistent among white people, like, in their, in their unfolding and in their journey of, right. like, understanding and engaging in racism who have always been sheltered from it mm -hmm. or resisted it in the past. And for me, at that point, I was starting to understand that this was, like, in everything, right. like that the, the, the history of race that I had insulated myself from in America and the way that that was playing out in my community, like that I had refused to see and I was starting to see it and to believe in the things that I believed in at that time, you know, the American dream, meritocracy, like mm -hmm. if you work hard, you can make things happen. Right. Once I understood those things, the beginning of those things, you know, having that conversation with you, I thought, well, he, the issue is education. Like right. the issue is yep. like what we just need is to organize black people so that they can own their own stuff so that they can't be gentrified. Right. And I mean, I, I hear people say some version of that. I mean, today I hear it all the time and you don't, and unless you have a friend like Jasmine, who's willing to, you know, process her anger for a few months and come back and, and try again. Like I was very lucky to have a friend like you that was willing to, you know, talk to me about this. Right. Because that's absolute nonsense. Well, and, and, you know, just for the listeners, you felt very convicted in your, your, your thought process and your suggestions and, mm -hmm. and, and what people needed to do to help black people. And, oh yeah, you know, I mean, I'd been a realtor for nine years. Right. I knew a lot, Jasmine, right. right? And I, and, you know, people, I think when they're confronted with a new thought or idea or information that they haven't heard of or thought of or took yeah. the time to consider, yeah. um, they feel very impassioned, like yep. your, your whole body language changed. And so I'm reading the situation and I'm trying to identify from here. And so we figured out how to end the conversation mm -hmm. and we went our separate ways. And I thought a lot about that and like, how much can I potentially share with this person who I thought was getting things to either be an advocate, ally, 
or can we even be friends? Right. Because I was excited about our friendship. You were doing new, exciting things in real estate. Yeah. And we were in the same office and there was this great energy and you were helping me out with technology, things that I wasn't interested in. <laughs> but I was like, I really want to do that. And then, but then there's this whole philosophical misunderstanding that we were having. I don't know if that's the appropriate way yeah. to talk about it, but we had very differing ideas of what the problem was. Well, Doug is reminding me that we need to go to the break. So okay. let's take a break and let's pick it up with okay. uh, philosophical differences <laughs> and misunderstandings. <laughs> All right. Hello, this is Eric Hanberg, host of the Channel 253 podcast, Citizen Tacoma. It's no secret that Tacoma's real estate market is off the charts right now. And whenever I have a question about what's happening, I take them to everyone's favorite pod auntie, Marguerite Martin. I trust her for so many reasons, but one of them is that she's not trying to sell me a house. After 16 years helping Tacomans buy homes, she's now a professional real estate matchmaker. That means her entire focus is getting you connected with the best agent for what you need. She helps you find experts because no agent is good at everything. Marguerite knows all the agents and she knows their specialty. Tell her what you're looking for and she'll help you swipe right for your perfect real estate agent. She helps me and my wife find an amazing agent to sell our condo downtown. And when we are ready to buy our next home, we'll turn to her for a match again. Best of all, getting a referral doesn't cost a dime. The agent pays Marguerite a finder's fee if you end up buying or selling. And you can rest easy knowing that you're going to get a great agent who specializes in exactly what you're looking for. To get started, visit movetotacoma.com and hit the contact form. Thank you, Marguerite, for getting Channel 253 up and running and your ongoing support of local media. All right, so we are back with Jasmine Jefferson from Windermere Professional Partners. Welcome, Jasmine. Also my friend. Yes. Also my manager. I'm still here. I didn't run. God, <laughs> you deserve a gold medal. So let's talk about sort of that turning point in our friendship where, I mean, when I think about it, I think like you had to decide whether it was worth it. Basically, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you put it down like that. And I think it's a complicated balancing act when you have to take the weight of all the times you had to determine if it was worth it and make that decision based on one person, based off of all of this other stuff, because there, it wasn't the first time. Right. And majority of the time, it's like, I have to save my mental space. Mm -hmm. And I don't even think I understood what saving your mental space was. It was just a, probably an inbred instinct mm -hmm. of fight or flight in that situation. So for people listening, like, especially I think for, for white people who are listening, who maybe don't have a lot of black friends, I don't think I had considered before, like the degree to which you kind of had to like have extra energy to be friends with me. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like that, the, the, like how much were you going to have to kind of put up with in either in order to get the good parts out of me? Whereas, right. you know, for me in friendship with you, like I wasn't thinking about. There was this whole subtext to a lot of the things we were talking about that I wasn't aware of, and becoming aware of those, like created conflict between us yeah. or created discomfort between us. And 
the, the payoff for that discomfort, I think, is the reason we're having this conversation. Absolutely. It's on the other side of, of all that vulnerability and all that embarrassment, and it's not fun to talk about it in front of people now, right. is like a more honest friendship. Absolutely. And the ability to create other more honest friendships. Yes. And I think that, um, you know, so going back to our clubhouse conversation, we had some people on stage with us that, that asked some really good questions. They were really great starter questions. You could tell for them, they had been thinking about this before our conversation mm -hmm. and they really wanted to know how to properly proceed, right? And we tried to make it abundantly clear, it's gonna be messy, you're mm -hmm. gonna stumble, there's bumps and stuff. Um, but what was important for me, so in that four months, it's not like I didn't see you. Yeah. There was social media, we're in the same yeah. office, but I observed you for four months. I listened to see if anything had changed or if you were evolving, were you continuing with your sudden awareness of things? Mm. Was the dialogue changing at all? And had that not been the case, even though we didn't wrap up that conversation about Browns. We didn't have like, you need to go check yourself and learn about this stuff. It was just like, okay, that's your opinion. That's fine. I'm going to go home. Yeah. I don't need to talk to you about this. But, yeah. you know, when, by the time we, we circled back around, you know, we were ready to dive into the next part. And you'd spent four months working on stuff. I spent four months thinking about stuff. Mm -hmm. And I think in the process of thinking, I was also working about or working on things as well, which led to the next fun conversation. Would you like to go there now? I don't know. Which one do you, I'll let you, you pick. Oh, man. I mean, there are so many conversations we've had. Um, I think for, for me, like, I, I would just like to say, like, it is a paradigm shift. It's not even the right word. It is like a total dissolution when you understand that the work you do has a racist impact. Mm -hmm. And I think my initial reaction was like, okay, there's gotta be an easy solution to this. Like this is a misunderstanding. And I think so often when white people come against a racial conflict around something that they have a stake in or that they get material benefit from, you're trying to find a way to make it okay to justify like not having to change. Right. And for me, like recognize the ra recognizing the racist impact of the way housing is done in Tacoma and has right. been done right. and across the country, but let's just talk about our own community, yeah. the place I make money. The impact of my website, which I had created with this idea that like, oh, people are going to love this. I'm going to tell everybody all this great stuff about Tacoma. <laughs> like what could be, it did not cross my mind to right. think about what the ultimate impact of that could be, right? Because I was coming from this perspective that was very insulated and, and intentionally so, right? Like I don't want to see... I, I, was, I would say I did not want to see race. And I think growing up in the 80s, like we were really socialized into colorblindness to see, to, to make those distinctions. And I see it all the time when I try to talk to colleagues about, about race, especially people my age and older. Like, well, Marguerite, I don't look at real estate that way. I don't look at agents as being black or white. And it's right. like, well, that's, that's a problem. That's and so I think, interesting to me. Because if, if you think about the 80s, we know that's, that's what we were program to believe but mm. my experience growing up the people who were talking to me weren't colorblind because right. they sure the hell let me know all the time that I was black well and that's which, the truth. which is wonderful that was not a problem to me because I embraced being black mm -hmm. so 
I can't imagine how it feels for people who are so conflicted. You know, if I had been in a household where there was two parents that had conflicting ideas about my, my ethnic makeup and how I should present in the world. Um, but just thinking back as a kid, if that's what you were experiencing and what people were talking about in your world and there was no discussion on color, but it was a consistent thing, whether overtly or just implied, that's, that's still a lot of difference there. I think it's a kind of like emperor's new clothes situation with mm. white people and race. Like we all have this collective lie we tell that the playing field is equal and if you work hard, not we all, like, but I'd say like growing up this was my experience, right? It's like everybody has an opportunity if you work hard enough, it's fine. And if you don't have things, if you don't own a home, if you don't have opportunity, just you just didn't work harder. hard enough. It just so happens right. that it's mostly white people that have things. And that is, that is the kind of like passive rate, and it's not passive, it's very active racism that I think I was like, in the process of realizing was like a big effing lie. Right. And so as you and I are trying to have these more honest conversations, I'm reconciling the fact that my career, my belief system, my understanding of the world, the reasons most of my friends are white, all of these things are not what I thought. Right. And um, yeah, that was messy. And that's been a part of and our is messy. It's it still is, it's messy. It's still messy. We still will have moments, but I think that we have enough respect for each other Actually, I don't even think, I know we have enough respect for each other to complete the dialogue, have a full-on conversation, and determine if we have to step away and think about it. Mm -hmm. um, I, think, I feel like the next thing that I really understood was, like, the different ways that we socialize. You know, oh, that <laughs> one. That was, that was actually our first attempt at being intentional yeah. as to two control freaks. We're going to structure the way our friendship is going to go. Why, by we're the way, it works about great. It. <laughs> Pro tip for Virgos. Oh, like, oh, yeah, I forgot. Yeah, okay, so we're both Virgos. But, you know, like, for me, it's all about, like, let's go to happy hour, let's have a drink. And I'm like, Jasmine, let's just meet at Matador. Oh like, that's what I do with all my other friends. And you were like, I do not want to go out to drinks with you. <laughs> and I was like, what? Specifically, no. and you have lovely friends, so mm. I know your friends are listening, and yes. I, I think they're lovely people. Yes. I can just only take so much of other people's friends. Well, and you were like, I do not grow and deepen my friendships at the Matador Happy Hour. That is not where it's at. And I was like, where's it at, Jasmine? My couch. And I was like, what? You need to sit your ass on my couch. In, in a house? Take your shoes off at in the a door. Residence? Sit on my couch and talk to me regular. Just be on my couch. Because for me, you know I like you if I come sit on your couch. Mm. So it was, in, and that was your thing with happy hour. I'm mm. interested in you. Yeah. Come to happy hour. No. Well, and I will say, like, many years later, like, I think you infected me a little, Jasmine, because, I mean, not just because of the pandemic, but, <laughs> like, in general, like, I am much more likely to want to spend time with my friends at home now than I was, like, back then. Yeah. And you were, like, really the first friend that I hung out with like that. I, I just don't understand. And, you know, that could be for different reasons. It, you, I don't understand surface-level friendships. It's, it's nice to have acquaintances, but you don't really pour a lot into that. And, you know, having lifelong strong friendships where you can really confide in people, mm -hmm. to me, was more important than surface level. 
And if we were, if I was about to help you out and learn some things and share stuff mm-hmm. with you, you were going to have to come sit on my couch and, and see what my world was like. Because absolutely. going to the Matador was walking into your world happy hour. Absolutely. And the, the things that you yep. guys talked about. You came to my house. We ate different food. Mm-hmm. We listened to different music. Yep. We, we danced. We had a good time. We randomly went to another black social club in Tacoma. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I brought you into my friend group as a way to show you this is how I live outside of the office. Well, and what was interesting about that to me was, you know, you grew up in Tacoma, you're a real estate agent in Tacoma, just like me, we're more or less the same age, mm-hmm. and your social group, your social calendar, like the way you were living was so different, and we lived, I mean, half a mile from each other. Right. And I think that was, that is, that is being black and being white in Tacoma, it, to me, it's part of it. Completely is, different worlds. Yeah, and I remember, like, Anne and I have done lots and lots of videos, some of them neighborhood tours, and I remember some of the, the feedback on our first tour of Tacoma was like, well, that's white Tacoma. Right. And it's like, well, yeah. You I know? have a question for you. Yeah, totally. So, you know, we had talked about your uh, responses to the move to Tacoma, and we discussed making sure to respond and all those things and what you were learning around that. Mm. And in jest, even though I was serious, <laughs> I said... I should do a website, move back to Tacoma. Yeah. Which would have been counter to what you were talking about because what I experienced was because people felt they couldn't get the education for their kids. You had a lot of people, my peers, my black peers that were moving to University Place or Puyallup and Mm. other places Mm -hmm. hoping their kids would have a better lived experience if they were, you know, and I think we find out now in hindsight that probably wasn't a better experience with them because of what they had to deal with. Yep. But what did you think when I said that? Because you were kind of tight-lipped. You're, you uh, can, was I? Yeah. I you kind of were just like... This is why hmm. I'm so glad to have you as a friend who has sort of, like, witnessed, like, the, the way that my mind has, like, evolved over the last five, six years. But, like... Mm-hmm. I mean, make moved back to Tacoma. That makes a lot of sense to me now. I right. don't know what I thought about it back then, but I think I was probably surprised. I think that the phenomenon was unknown to me. Gotcha. You know, it wasn't something that was in my awareness. Like, and, you know, that's just part of, like, the people who were around me, right? And the conversations that we were having. Yeah. So I was, I was always curious. I know we've never talked about that, but, and I brought it up a couple times, and it was... Marguerite, you are not usually at a loss for words, but it felt like oh, you were taking a moment to think. Because <laughs> you didn't say anything back. You're like, well, that's interesting. Well, you know, I'm very protective of my domain, but <laughs> you can make me back to come. I mean, we probably, we should just be bleeping this. We, you don't want anybody getting her URL. We need to get the URL before this drops. Right. But I think there is not a lot of opportunities for white people to talk about the impacts of, you know, white control of wealth Mm -hmm. and um, white control of everything in our communities and in our friendships and in our work lives. Like, I I feel like um, it's like the, I felt like I reached a certain point with my understanding where I had a lot of urgency that I didn't have before around interrupting racism changing the way I earn my living, Mm -hmm. changing the way I talk about this with friends and colleagues, being willing to have business relationships 
and being willing to have friendships and or to have people get mad at me, like the urgency of the situation where black people in Tacoma across the country, but again, just talking about Tacoma, do not have the same access to resources and are systemically kept from those resources. Right. If you really understand that and you really believe that, I don't understand how you can't even clumsily, even effing it up with your friends, like start to focus more of your life energy on interrupting it. Right. And I, I think like in our conversations about our colleagues and our friends, like I have a lot of impatience that I don't think you can afford to have around why aren't people speaking up? Why aren't people stopping this? Right. I don't have time to think about those things. I have to be responsible for what I can control and be a disruptor in my own way. Yep. And and one of the things that you and I talk about a lot because you are a calmer, more patient, more collaborative personality. Like I'm such a blunt instrument and it's something that I'm working to change because you know, you can't engage in thoughtful conversations about race if you're impatient, talking over people, if you are that kind of person. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to develop your natural attributes in myself, but also like we are two very different types of folks with very different types of strengths. Right. And like what what we talk a lot about about like you work well within systems. Mhm. And I tend to work outside systems. So what are the different approaches that people can be taking, you know, within their professional spaces, within their friend groups, within their communities to work for change? And how do we work together? You know, I mean, for you have to people need to be genuine in their uh, reaching out to increase their friends group. Going back to what you were talking about when you were in um that leadership program, I know that there were people that were like, well, how do I get more, you know, friends of color or, or mm-hmm. how, do, how do I, how do I make some black friends? Absolutely a question right. that I had and have. Right. Um, I go back to something that sounds so simple. It's just be yourself. And I think that you being vulnerable you were being yourself. And so I could actually see who you were mm. without whatever walls you could have been putting up because you didn't want to say or do the wrong, the wrong thing. And you were like open to helping and open to being helped. So if there was an easy answer, if we could just solve this with this podcast, you know, somebody would have already figured this out. But I see, I think that we see it happening with the more uh, people talk about and have conversations and they, they expand their friend group. So if you want to meet people outside of your friend circle, go do other things. And then who do you naturally connect with instead of looking at your Facebook group Mm -hmm. and be like, okay. Well, she's Asian. I don't have any Asian friends. I'm going to invite her to coffee and, you know, figure out what people are interested in. If you have a common theme, then go with that. And if it's meant to be just like regular friends, then it's going to happen. But you also have to be open and receptive to the fact that they have a different lived experience and you need to respect that. One thing that I think about in this conversation is that there there are things I do not talk about with you. What? I t- yeah, I mean, I try not to. Well, like you know, around around race stuff, like there are things I try to talk about with white friends who've done more work than me. Oh, you know, and try to unpack that and and do that work when 
so that when you and I have a conversation, I'm sure as far as you're concerned, I'm asking lots of raw, dumb questions, but like, there's you know, more. Yeah. You know, like I think about like a few years ago when I asked you, what, what was it you were talking about at clubhouse? Like I asked you like, what do your friends say about like white fragility oh, yeah. and white tears? It, it threw me off. And I, I'm like, I, when I, you talk with your black friends about white fragility and white tears and you were like, we don't talk about that. I was like, <laughs> we don't sit around and talk about white people. We were like letting our hair down, relaxing, listening to some good music, joking, having a good time. Well, I know everybody just... likes to think that black people are just like so angry all the time. And it's like a freaking celebration when we can just chill. Well, and it's, I mean, just obviously another extension of the way that like white people center themselves and I was centering <laughs> my struggle and my confusion and my journey and your lived experience, like whatever, right? Like, I mean, not whatever, but like, right. I'm sure that's part of what was happening. But just the, the way, the conversations that I'm having about race with white people are different than the conversations that I'm having about race with friends of color and black friends. Like, I don't necessarily think I even need to know what you talk about with white people. Yeah. I, don't, I don't need to know. I'm, I'm happy you're having those conversations because it's like caucusing, right? It, but this is, what I, this is the point I'm trying to make is that like, if you're not having those conversations with your white friends, you're going to be trying to have them. And you know, like it leaves less room for regular friendship. <laughs> what do you do about the people who are not interested in educating themselves and being empathetic and understanding and being respectful? Have you had a situation? You mean other white people? Yeah. I think this is an area that I'm actually kind of evolving on. Okay. You know, I'm from a very conservative and very um, racially homogenous family. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I don't speak to most of my family anymore. Most of my family is Trump supporting and you know, all those things. It's complicated. We don't have to go into it now, mm -hmm. but like I've just kind of tuned out. And um, my friend in Portland, Tori Glass, Tori mm -hmm. Williams Douglas, she has been speaking out a lot lately about, hey, white people, you don't get to disown your racist family members or mm. your friends that don't want to talk about race. That's your work. I have mm. to deal with those people. I bump into those people. I don't care if it's uncomfortable. Don't you think it's uncomfortable for me if I bump into your racist aunt? Like, get to work. And that has, um, I think before, my tendency was like, if you don't want to talk about this, I'm thinking about this all the time. I'm talking about this all the time. Like, it's very hard for me not to talk about these topics. Um, and if you're tired of it and you don't want to talk about it, well, then go away. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's been my, that's been my feeling for the last few years. And I'm, starting to come around um, to the idea that actually like that is white people's work. I mean, and I understand like talking to other white people, but I was more interested in talking to other white people that, that were engaged. Like you. Not necessarily that even thought like me, but that were at least willing to engage in the possibility that the way things are is not an accident. Mm, right. You know, and, and, and we're willing to have the difficult conversations and do the work sincerely. And there are people that I think are so, I, 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 you and I have talked about this, like to understand like systemic racism in America and to understand the reality of white supremacy, it shakes everything. Mm -hmm. it, 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 every system is infected with this and every, every relationship, your church, your home, your friends, your family, your school, your, your neighborhood, right? It's all infected with white supremacy. And to see that, and it means you have to change the way you interact with the world. And I think a lot of people would rather do anything than acknowledge that they're complicit in a system that destroys people's lives. Like they would rather believe a fantasy mm -hmm. than face it. And I, my thought before was like, if you're in fucking, excuse me, 
if you're in freaking fantasy land, I don't want to talk with you. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm kind of coming around to the fact that that's not going to work. I'll be interested to see how that goes. A girlfriend of mine, uh, Vanya Harbor, who used to be, or Vanya Kent Harbor, who used to be uh, in Tacoma, she's moved away. Um, she was talking with me recently, and she said, because I grew up Catholic, I'm shame-oriented. Mm. And so when I'm talking about racism with other white people, like, I tend to try to, like, hit people really hard right. and not necessarily meet people where they are. Because Which we've talked about that. Yeah. We it, have talked about that. And, and that's what works on me. And that's what I told her. I'm like, some of us need to be strategically shamed to have mm -hmm. a dramatic shift in understanding. Like, not all of us, like, have these slow, dawning understandings. Some of us really need to be hit in the face. And I'm here to hit other people in the face. And she was like, yeah, but you were socialized in shame. And, you know, there's a backlash against um, learning and shame. Mm -hmm. And there's, like, self-righteousness and resentment that comes from learning and changing through shame. And she thinks that I need to develop new tools. And I'm here for it. Like, I hear it. It's just, um, it's so frustrating sometimes. And, you know, we have a couple of mutual friends. I'm thinking about someone in particular who, you know, I, I can tell they're saying the things that you have to say in 2021 to operate in these spaces and they're doing just enough work to not get in trouble around race. But that urgency of recognizing that everything you have is unearned wealth and power, I can tell it's not there. There's right. no, there, there is an urgency that a person brings to their work when they realize their wealth and power is unearned. Right. And, I, and when I don't see it in people that are close to me who claim to be doing the work, it is very hard not to move into that mode. Right. Yeah, and this is this is one of the topics where you're teaching me because I'm not Catholic, <laughs> and black conservatives are different than white conservatives, yeah, and so, true. you know, when you talk about that stuff, I'm like, that's a perspective that I am not aware of, and so one of my growth things in 2020 was if I really actually want to be an effective change agent, I also have to do some learning. Mm. And there's unlearning that I have to do as a person of color. And there's, um, you know, other stuff as a, an, an adult with childhood trauma on top mm -hmm. of that. But being open to that the, there's a white experience as well that I don't understand because this didn't start with us in this generation no. or our kids and kid age people. Like this goes back so much further and there's a lot for all of us to do. Well, I do think one of the things that, I hope it's okay to say this, like oh, one of the things that I enjoy about our friendship is that like I learn, like I, I recognize that things that I think of as just being like the human experience are like white culture. Mm -hmm. And you tell me about things that you're like, well, when I was growing up, like this is what we did and this is how right. we talked about it. I think it's really, I've, I've, that's one of the things I enjoy about being friends with you is really like, oh, that's white lady culture. Like, that's not lady culture. It's been really interesting. It has. Well, I enjoyed our talk today. And I, I know that you're, you're doing all of the things. And I'm actually feeling a little anxious now. Is there but any... maybe we should do this again. I don't know. I, I am... feel like we've only kind of hit the halfway mark of what we could talk about. It's true. I'm, I'm, so, I'm so interested in what, in what people might have taken from this conversation. And if you have any comments or you have any questions or you think... We missed an opportunity to talk about something important, like hit the contact page on Move to Tacoma. Like, I'd, I'd love to hear it, and we can definitely come back and go deeper 
Is there anything, Jasmine, you want to make sure to say today? Hmm. Or anything you would want someone listening to take from this conversation? It's so funny because Nate asked me that, and I wasn't expecting what came out of my mouth to come out of my mouth when I was on the, the Nerd Farmer podcast. <laughs> um, I, I think the biggest thing, which goes back to our whole purpose of doing this, is that, um, you know, if you feel like somebody's potentially a safe space. It, it's kind of like, you know, being around toxic people. Mm. Um, if you feel like that person actually isn't toxic and you can work on stuff, um, you know, find somebody that's comfortable and, you know, try to have the conversations and be okay with screwing up some stuff. Be okay with it getting ugly and dirty. Be okay with you might feel some shame and guilt around yeah. it. And yeah. um, if you're coming from a good place, and don't try to act like you're coming from a good place because I got my radar up for that. There's a difference between the person who's pretending to come from a good place to say mm -hmm. something stupid just because they want to see what happens and mm. the person who's actually coming from a good place. So just, I don't know, go out on the limb. That was the whole point of yep. us talking about this is go out on them and talk about, I mean, there's a lot of confusion, hurt and frustration, but there's a lot of possibility. Yes. There's a lot of opportunity and there's yeah. enough space for us to all celebrate who we are as individuals. We don't have to be like the other person to be friends. Thank you for coming on the podcast today, for suggesting this topic. And for being my friend. You're welcome. We have so many more uncomfortable conversations to have. Oh, God. What a blessing you are to me. <laughs> Want to learn more about life in Tacoma? Visit MoveToTacoma.com. You might also be on the list of people who ask me why I don't date white men. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, I'm always going to be curious okay. about that. I mean, also, it's <laughs> obvious. But also, like, yeah. Let's, let's talk about all the things. Did you know Channel 253 is member supported? I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I hope you will show your support by going to channel253.com slash membership and join. Thank you. Move to Tacoma as part of the Channel 253 network. Check out our other shows, Nerd Farmer, Interchangeable White Ladies, Citizen Tacoma, Crossing Division, We Are Tacoma, Flounders Beat Team, and What Say You? This is Channel 253.